Listening to the Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie, and even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, geez Louise, we could not be more different. I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, borderline antisocial, and terrified when Amy says she has an idea because that usually spells trouble. I'm Amy. I want to be your new best friend, especially if you're a book lover, and even maybe if you aren't. I'm also a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict. I love the fall season, and I treat a good thrift store like it's a national treasure. Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other, and sometimes a special guest about books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading, as well as other bookish things like... Authors in the News. Recent book-to-film adaptations. Weird stuff we've Googled while reading. And our TBR count. We're glad you're here. I happened upon the audiobook Graveyard of Lost Children by Katrina Monroe on Libby and was riveted by how the horror novel explored the postpartum period while also bringing in supernatural elements. It totally sucked me back into the early weeks after delivering my first child and left me with that same sense of shell shock. And I thought, of course, having a baby is a horror story. So we reached out to Katrina to see if she'd be interested in chatting with us, and we're so glad that she was. We talked with her about Graveyard of Lost Children and her first novel, They Drown Our Daughters, and about why motherhood and the mother-daughter relationship are perfect topics to write about because they are steeped in fear and confusion and inspire terror at times. Her book has been on several lists for Best Halloween Reads of 2023 and Best LGBTQ Horror Reads. But first, Carrie, I am back after a week, is more than a week, of being away, but not for necessarily fun reasons. I had to leave town very quickly because my daughter-in-law was very ill in the hospital. Um, She had to be transferred to even a larger hospital. But I can say that she is now out of the hospital. She's feeling much better. Because my my son had to go back to work, I was her nurse. I served as her nurse for a little while in the hospital and at home. And I will say, after that experience, I think every person who's in the hospital needs to have somebody with them. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I think nurses are, they're overworked and they're probably understaffed at hospitals And they just have a hard time getting to everybody with all of their needs. And I just, I think about my daughter-in-law thinking if I hadn't been there, I don't know how long she would have had to wait to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water or what have you. I I feel for these people who don't have family or friends or somebody to, to kind of be their advocate in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you came back and then we're home for like a hot minute, then went away again. And then next weekend you're going away or actually this coming weekend you're going away. I am. I am ready to be home for a little while, but yes, this past weekend, I do a girl's retreat a weekend away with some friends and we've been doing it for, I don't know, like four or five years. We always do one in the fall. This year we went pretty close to home. Usually we'll go someplace, maybe an hour away at the most two hours away this was right across the river in New Albany, Indiana. And New Albany is amazingly cute. It is a cute little town. And we stayed at this old Victorian home that had been, I think when the people bought it, it had been gutted and they refurbished it. I think it was built in 1874. It was a really cool house. It had like a gazillion bedrooms. The decoration was very eclectic, but it felt a little to me like a house that you know, the house from Clue, like the board game, Mm -hmm. because there was a library, there was a, there was a butler's pantry, there was a dining room, there were all these rooms. And I could just imagine like with a candlestick in the library or (laughs) a wrench in the, in the sitting room or, or what have you. And I have to admit, I think I've been reading too many spooky books lately, but the first night I was there, I was a little creeped out. Did you have to have somebody walk you to the bathroom? No, but fortunately, the bedroom I was staying in was connected to the the bedroom next to mine. So my friend and I just kept the door open. 
<laughs> between our two rooms. The second day I was fine, but it was just like this big, tall staircase that was painted black. And they had like a, a gallery wall at the bottom of the steps that was filled with different kind of portraits, not portraits of people who had lived there, just random portraits. But some of them were a little bit creepy. I don't know. But I think maybe it's just that I have read and I am now watching spooky things. And so maybe I, my sense of creepiness might be heightened. <laughs> Speaking of you know, creepy things. You weren't able to go with me. We had planned to go see Kentucky Shakespeare's uh, The Woman in Black. Mm-hmm. And so I had to find somebody else to go with me and my daughter was available. So she and I went to see it and it was really good. And it's it has sold out and they even added on an additional week because so many people wanted to see it. So it was um, definitely creepy. And it's kind of amazing what audiences can do with just their imagination and, and a couple actors and very little scenery. It was really good and creepy and, and I enjoyed it and Nora did too. So um, you missed out. I know you were doing helpful things, but. Um, I know I missed, you out. missed out. Yeah. So have you seen the movie? The woman in black? No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Okay. I was just curious how, it, I mean, obviously it's not the same, you know, because yeah. with the movie, you've got the full movie set, you've got right. all the special effects. I was just curious, you know, how it compared, but there were only two actors, right? Yes. Technically, technically there were two speaking actors. There was a third actor who didn't speak. Okay. Okay. Because so. I was going to say, even in the movie, there aren't that many characters. Yeah. So that's probably a, a good one to uh adapt that yeah. way. Yeah, it was it was quite good. So um and and I do want to say now I have not watched this, but one of my former students texted me on Wednesday afternoon to let me know about the the fall of the House of Usher miniseries on I'm Netflix. watching it right now. Okay. I'm well right now. he is a sophomore in college. I taught him middle and high school. He and I were talking uh, through this text and, you know, just talking about the book. And I mentioned to him uh, what moves the dead by T Kingfisher, if he would be interested in reading that. Well, Friday morning, this is such a college student thing. Friday morning at two thirty AM, he texts me and he says, can confirm you would absolutely love the mini series just finished super well done. So <laughs> I did not see that of course at two 30 in the morning on Friday, but I was like, okay, <laughs> note it. And I will definitely get on that. Um, as soon as possible. Well, we started the fall of the house of usher because we love the different limited series that Mike Flanagan does midnight mass last year was phenomenal. That, that was a really good one. And the Haunting of Hill House that he did, I don't know, like four year, four or five years ago. That is one of my all-time creepiest series to watch. So I've been anxious for The Fall of the House of Usher. We have started it. We're only about two episodes in, and I am, um, you know, I'm not loving it yet, but I think, you know, I have read really good reviews, so I'm sure that it gets a little better. But the basis of this is that the Usher family is is like a Sackler family. They're kind of playing with that. And so the Usher family is they own this uh, pharmaceutical company that created this painkiller that was not supposed to be addictive, but is I thought that was like an interesting modern take on it. Mm-hmm. We'll kind of we'll see where it goes. Well, so my student said that Every episode is, I mean, so even though it's the fall of the House of Usher, he said, I just realized every episode is based on one of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories. So, Mm. I I mean, without seeing it, I I can't verify that, but maybe there's things that are in each episode that relate to one of his other stories. That could possibly be there. There's a lot of name dropping. Like mm. one of the spouses is named Annabelle, mm. like from Annabelle Lee. Mm-hmm. There's one named Lenore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The patriarch of the family, his granddaughter's name is Lenore. Mm. So there's a lot of Poe Easter eggs in there. Hmm. So cool. I'll have to think about what your student said about that, about yeah. how each story is based on a sort of based on an Edgar Allan Poe story. Because mm. I didn't pick that up, but I also wasn't. It's not fresh in my mind. 
I bet if you could find online what story they're based on, and then I could go read the story, and <laughs> that would make me feel better. Because you need a pro- you need another project. Yeah, that's right. Like I need another project. Right, right. <laughs> While I was gone, I also binge watched uh, as many episodes that were available of the new Goosebumps series. Oh, really? Yes. So I think there was a there was a Goosebumps series back in. In the 90s, 1995, it was a TV series. They have revamped it in 2023. It's on Netflix. And I watched it with my daughter-in-law while she was sort of recovering at home. And based on, you know, the Goosebumps books by R.L. Stein. Uh, and this one, I think where the original series just had, you know, each episode was about a different story. This tries to take one overarching storyline. But then each episode kind of focuses maybe on one of his more well-known stories. Like, you know, there's one that's about the mask or about the the ventriloquist Slappy. dummy. Slappy. Sl- Slappy the ventriloquist dummy. Each episode is micro-focused on a smaller story, but there's an overarching theme. And the, and the characters are older. They're in high school. Mm. And whereas I think in the original series, they were like more middle school age. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it probably is a little scarier than the original. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like great TV, but it's kind of a fun binge watch. You know, if you want to watch something with your or, you know, your middle schoolers or your young teens that is scary, but not maybe as scary as like a haunting of Hill House or, you know, fall of the House of Usher. This might be a good thing to watch. And it's a little cheesy, but I'm enjoying it. I did want to say, you know, today we're talking to Katrina Monroe about her horror book that's sort of based on how scary motherhood can be. Yeah. Especially new motherhood. In our conversation, you will hear talk about how it seems like in our culture right now, there have been a lot of books coming out about that. Like I'm thinking of The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, about a, a woman who is sent to a kind of like a prison or a rehab for being a bad mother. But what she did was not she that wasn't bad. Like a, something yeah, something that any uh, lots of mothers have done. Exactly. So it's <laughs> sort of like this like motherhood dystopian mm-hmm. novel. You know, she was saying that there have been a lot of books coming out lately. And I was thinking about that um, as I was editing the episode. I think there's probably some reasons for that. Things that are happening in our world right now that are making motherhood seem like a scary prospect. Mm -hmm. I mean, it always has been a little of a scary prospect, but I'm thinking about during COVID, how mothers were both having to, if they, you know, work, they were having to try to work from home and also serve as a teacher for their child on their Zoom classes. I heard so many mothers this was not a position I was in because my children were old enough. They were in high school or in college. I didn't have to deal with that. But the pressure of trying to do both of those things was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I'm thinking about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And now being a mother is not always a choice that you get to make. In a lot of states, unless you can travel across lines, you're forced to be a mother. Mm-hmm. If you happen to accidentally get pregnant and that was not your plan. Right. And and motherhood, I mean, I very much wanted all three of my children, but it's one thing if you want that and you still have to experience sort of those horrible things about it. It's another thing if you don't want it and it's terrifying and all those horrible things go along with it. Right. So it, it, I'm not saying that motherhood is a bad thing. I love all of my children, but I mean- it's a lifelong commitment. And even when your kid turns 18, that doesn't mean you st- you stop mothering. Yeah. I, as I as you from- just experienced. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You are still like a mother for the rest of your life. You're always going to worry about that kid. Yeah. I feel yeah. like. Ma- yeah. Maybe not everybody does. I mean. It's a, it's a different, different kind of yeah. worry. It's a different kind of mothering. But it's yeah. still constant. I feel like we expect different things from mothers than we do from fathers. Oh, yeah. Like if a guy watches his kid so his wife can go to pottery class, it's like, woo, good job, dad. But women do that all the time and they don't get kudos. And I mean, that's just what they're expected to do. The husband does it. It's like, way to go. Way to be an awesome dad. It's like, 
well, they're just doing what a mom does every day of her life. I just think we are expected to stop our whole lives mm-hmm. to mother, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. That was one of the things that I really liked about uh, Graveyard of Lost Children is that it really made me think about motherhood and made me see motherhood in a way that I hadn't before. Although I do want to say, you know, usually we don't give like trigger warnings or anything like that, but I listened to it as an audiobook and it has been almost 20 years since I went through my postpartum depression and it brought all that back. And that it was, it, so in some ways it was hard for me to listen to. It made it all the more compelling for me to listen to it and to want to keep listening. So I guess I would say that if this may not be the book for somebody who is newly postpartum, Hmm. (laughs) you know, if they're struggling, this might be triggering. It might be, it might be a little Mm -hmm. too much for them to handle because it was for me and I am two decades past it, but it, you know, Hmm. so I felt like in that way, it was really well done because I felt all those things. It really took me back. So uh, we had a good conversation with Katrina. We are very happy to have Katrina Monroe, who's in Minnesota. She is the author of two horror novels. I, I read, Katrina, your book, Graveyard of Lost Children, and it completely like knocked me out. And so I was like, whoo, we really need to talk to her. So thanks for joining <laughs> us. Yeah, absolutely. I I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, she was texting me while she was reading this. And this is so awesome. (laughs) It's like awesome and horrible at the same time. (laughs) You know, that's what I aim for. Awesome and awesome and horrible. Awesome and terrible. That's that's it. (laughs) So your first book was called uh, They Drown Our Daughters. And that came out in 2022. And your most recent one that I mentioned is called Graveyard of Lost Children, and that was published in the spring of this year, so earlier in 2023. And both of these books focus on mothers and daughters. So why is that a topic that that you're exploring in your writing? I am a mom, so that's number one. But I became a mom really early in my life. I was 19 when uh, my daughter was born. I have two. And so my entire adult life, my identity has been almost entirely around being a mom. And they say to write what you know. So that's that's what I've been writing. I, I explore a lot of relationships between um, different kinds of daughters, different kinds of mothers. And it, it helps me to kind of work through what it means to be a mother of, of daughters. It's, it's a really complicated feeling <laughs> all of the time, as I'm sure anyone who has a daughter knows. So it's writing these kinds of stories has really helped me work through those in in a way that I can, you know, throw things at my characters and, and say, hey, at least it's not that bad. Right, right. <laughs> they drown our daughters. From what I understand, that's about an older mother and daughter relationship, whereas Graveyard of Lost Children is a younger mother and an infant. But there's also, if you are a woman and you have a child, you're also somebody else's child. So are there things in that mother-daughter relationship that you find are particularly easy to mine, I guess, for conflict? Yeah. I find it easy, but it's a really delicate thing to balance when it comes to uh, editors, <laughs> where they, they say that all of these problems would be solved if they just talked to each other. And I'm like, yes, that's my point. <laughs> that is exactly my point. <laughs> I don't know what it is that I, I find from you know just my own experience, especially that a lot of the conflict that comes between mothers and daughters specifically is that it either they don't talk or when they talk, everything is subtext mm-hmm. or um, things are hidden for the sake of, you know, they they're trying to keep their daughter safe or they're trying to spare their mother's feelings. And so a lot goes unsaid. And that's where all of the trouble starts <laughs> and it stays. You know, honestly, I was thinking about something about what you said, except more expansive. It occurred to me, you know, probably every story that's ever been written, there would be no conflict if people just communicated better. Yeah. You know, all of yeah. them, there would be no stories if it wasn't for that. No, that is that is totally true. And I think the the only issue comes from my issue, especially is is when I rely too heavily on just not talking. Right. <laughs> So 
Graveyard of Lost Children is about a woman named Olivia who's recently given birth to a daughter and almost immediately she begins to struggle. And whether she's struggling from postpartum psychosis or some kind of supernatural phenomenon is unclear. So as I mentioned, I listened to this as an audiobook and I had postpartum, not psychosis, but postpartum mental health issues. And listening to this, I felt it, you know, (laughs) like I felt those feelings that I had. I never really thought of the postpartum period as being a horror story, (laughs) but it totally is. So I'd love to know what was your thinking process, either the, the original idea or, you know, your writing of it. So the the idea of postpartum kind of came late in the the concept phases of the story. Originally, I really wanted to focus on the changeling aspect. I, I'm a huge fan of, I'm fascinated by different kinds of folklore, especially ones with like really unusual creatures, I guess. And a changeling is a very unusual creature to me. And so when I started writing the story, it was more about, well, what if, you know, a changeling was allowed to grow up and they didn't get changed back? What kind of person would that be? And that's where Olivia sort of came from. But then the the more I thought about the story and the more of myself really and my experience got put into Olivia's character, I realized that this was it was a story about a changeling, but it was also a story about a woman who has become a mother And she thinks she's prepared, but there is so much has happened to her up until that point that she is less prepared than she could have ever imagined. Her her mother is locked up. She doesn't have anyone to turn to. Her wife is less than supportive. Her grandparents and her her aunt, they they just, you know, try to brush everything to the side like you're okay it's okay that wishful way that people do whenever they don't know how to handle something that you know scares them or they don't understand it's okay it's okay and i i really wanted to kind of portray the idea of of solitude in those first you know weeks after you're born you're a mother you're supposed to understand instinctively what it means to be a mom and how to do it. And like I mentioned, I was 19 when I had my daughter. I had no blueprint. My entire family lived across the country from me. I had occasional phone calls. So it was it was very very it was a very scary experience for me. So for me, it was easy to make that that part of Olivia's life terrifying for her. Oh my gosh. It sounds like a generational trauma too. I mean, Olivia's mother had some trauma from Olivia and then Olivia not having a mother, that's somewhat traumatic and she doesn't have any role models. And so is it just, you know, perpetuating itself? Right. So why was that, that whole, that idea of generational trauma, why was that something that you wanted to explore? This is cheaper than therapy. It really is. Uh, So So of all the things that I've written, uh, Graveyard of Lost Children, it pulls the most from um, not necessarily specifics to my life, but uh, situations and and relationships that I've had and the kinds of relationships that I've had with family, especially in that time of my life. The generational trauma, that's something that I actually touch on a lot in They Drown Our Daughters as well. And uh, that kind of spawned from conversations that I've had with my mother. There was a point a few years ago where we were both going through some stuff. It was totally separate and unrelated, but we kind of found our way to each other. And we would have these long conversations about her upbringing because she also had me when she was very young. She was 18, I believe. And I didn't know anything about her as, you know, a young woman, what her life was like. So we talked a lot about that. And one of the things that she said a lot when she would say something about my grandmother, she would say, oh, but it was just so bad. You're so lucky you didn't have to experience that. And I would think to myself, but I did, though, just in a different way. It was the same, but it was different. And I started to think about, well, if I had had these conversations with my grandmother, would she have said the same thing about my great grandmother? Mm. And my inkling is probably. So it's it's about both of these books and, and the central characters. It's about kind of finding your place at the tail end of these chains of trauma that's passed down with all good intentions. They're not trying to, you know, perpetuate these horrible things on their daughters. But it just sort of happens. And these characters find themselves in a place of, well, I don't want to do that. How do I fix it? And that is a place that I have found myself in 
on multiple occasions where I catch myself, you know, thinking about or saying something to to my daughter or thinking something about her. And I go, oh, my God, that's my mother. (laughs) And I have to stop myself. And and so uh, these two books especially kind of take that into account that, you know, oftentimes we don't realize we're perpetuating that trauma until it's too late. Well, and it's one of those things where if your mother experiences trauma, they experience it firsthand. And mm-hmm. then you experience them trying to deal <laughs> with yes. their trauma, their baggage. And so, as you said, you're not dealing with it firsthand, but you're dealing with their dealing with it, which may be healthy and may not. And I, I know for myself, there were things that I thought about my parents when I was a kid that when I grew up and became a parent myself, I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> like I just didn't get it. You just, you see things as a, as a child see, sees things and you don't always get it. Yeah. There, there's just a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah. And it, it kind of comes back to that, that idea of conflict around uh, not talking. And that's, I think those two kind of go hand in hand. If you have a book that is about generational trauma, I guarantee 90% of the conflict is going to come from just characters not communicating well. So one of the interesting things about your book is that Olivia's partner, Chris, falls into many of the same behaviors that men sometimes fall into after their spouse delivers an infant. And even though they're a same sex couple, Uh, Chris just doesn't really understand what childbirth does to Olivia's body, her mind, her spirit. She sort of stays focused on her job, and she doesn't seem very sympathetic to what Olivia is experiencing. So can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah. So the reason behind Chris was kind of two-pronged. The first being that Uh, It was really important to really drive home Olivia's isolation. A lot of what she does and the reasons why she does the things that she does is because she feels she has no other choice. She is completely isolated and has to find things out for herself. She she can't rely on anybody she feels like and that really compounds the the fear and the, the psychosis that comes later. The second part is that I wanted Chris to be kind of one of those characters that you either saw her for who she was. And that is that is a woman who is out of her depth. She's scared. And the way that she processes that fear is to be this this stoic, solid, I go to work, I bring home the money, I my wife is suffering, and I'm just doing everything I can to help her. And most of that is to just get out of the way or to, you know, if if she's scared about something, or she's anxious about something, if I just if I say it enough times in her face that everything is fine, then it'll just be fine. So I I wanted people to either see that or to also recognize the way you did that this is how men mostly, you know, I hate to generalize, but (laughs) men mostly react to this kind of this kind of situation. And it could either be um, an eye opening experience or or a wait a minute, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. experience. Chris is actually one of my favorite characters in the book just because I I feel for her in the way that I feel for, you know, if I have I have a friend or a family member who's, you know, going through something and I can't really do anything about it or I I don't have the tools to do anything about it, so I'm just helplessly lobbing, you know, platitudes. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> well, I, I I see myself in that too. It, my husband and I our daughter our oldest is getting ready to be 20 and this is the first time I've, it has ever occurred to me that maybe when he was completely unhelpful after we had her, that it was, he was scared and clueless, not just he was being a jerk. And so I'm like, oh, he probably, I didn't know what I was doing. And he knew even less because he hadn't had nine months of pregnancy to sort of get used to the idea. So. Right. And, and especially for Chris, there was this disconnect because while, you know, this is her wife and this is her child. Olivia is the one giving birth and Chris doesn't really have any genetic connection to this baby, even right out of the gate. It doesn't mean she loves her any less. It just makes her feel more, more disconnected from what's happening with Olivia and Flora. So several times in the book, Olivia says something to the effect of not wanting to tell anyone what she's experiencing because she doesn't want them to take her baby. And I remember being postpartum, having some mental health issues and having that exact same thought, you know, that 
terrifying thought. Like if I tell somebody how I'm feeling, they're going to take my baby. If readers take away some kind of empathy for women or or for people who give birth and, you know, recognize that the struggle is not necessarily because, you know, well, I having an infant is hard. Well, yes, but it also takes an extraordinary toll on your on your mind and your body and and you're exhausted and it's it's all of these things and I guess I just hope that it helps people to have a little more empathy for that. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm interested in is the whole thought that giving birth and becoming a mother can be both extremes. Uh, it can be an euphoric happy time or it can also be a period when you totally lose yourself. And you you feel like maybe you've become, you know, a completely different person. And it's interesting to see it from a horror genre point of view. I just wondered if you could can talk about that a little bit. You know, you have this thing growing inside of you and then it sort of bursts out. And then suddenly I remember feeling like even though I loved my baby, I also felt like I kind of wasn't there as a person anymore. I was just the mother of this baby. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And and I think that that's something that we as as a society in general are kind of all discovering at the same time. There have been so many <laughs> mother-related horror novels and films and and TV shows that have come out in the last couple of years that I I'm like, wow, I feel like we've just all had a a collective consciousness moment of going, this is so scary because it really is. And and I credit a lot of that to the generations coming up that it's recognizing that pregnancy and childbirth can kill you. It It isn't likely, hopefully, but it can. And in a myriad of ways that you can't possibly begin to imagine. And then there's the, the societal pressure of when you are a mom, you are a mom first. It doesn't matter if you were, you know, a, a human with an entire life before that with, with dreams and, and thoughts and ambitions and all of these other things. How dare you put any of those above your children, you know? And I think that that compounded together in a kind of perfect storm of, of a situation that, that we're all coming to the realization that, you know, Motherhood is scary, but also moms are scary <laughs> because of how much we are asking them to do and and how much they are capable of and what that means for them. You know, at what point do they do they break, which is another book, I guess. But it's <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like we've all kind of reached that consensus together and it's it's awesome. But also, like we mentioned at the beginning, it's awesome, but so scary. <laughs> At the same time. <laughs> yeah. Well, Amy, when you were describing that, you know, that this, I don't, I don't, can't remember your exact words, but it was like this baby bursts from you or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Like, I'm thinking of the movie Alien. Ex- well, you know, I, I mean, it's not exactly like that, but you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's, it's very easy to take something that in some ways is like this beautiful, magical experience. And then if you just look at it slightly differently, it's, it can be kind of like a terrifying thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like so. pregnancy cravings. Think about that as well. It's, it's yeah. innocuous things like gummy bears and canned spinach, but it, it is easily the human flesh. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very strange things. There are women who crave dirt. It's It, it makes yeah. no sense yeah. whatsoever, but it happens and you can't control it. And there's this thing inside you that is literally a parasite. It's taking all of your nutrients yeah. from you so much that you have to take supplements so you don't waste away. It's a horrifying experience and we we do it anyway and it's totally worth it. But in the moment you go, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is yeah. so scary. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I say, you know, when I look back on it, but I think I even said it then, like, I feel like I'm my own science experiment. Like yeah. all three of my pregnancies, I was like, I am my own science experiment. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, am I like, is my head going to spin around? I certainly did enough puking that that was, you know, entirely possible. But oh, yeah. So why do you enjoy writing horror? Why is this the the genre that kind of speaks to you? You know, I find that my taste in genres bounces around all the time. And Right now, horror just happens to be my thing. I am gravitating slowly more toward 
mysteries and thrillers just because that's where my brain is going. I've got one of those ADHD things where I need shiny things sometimes <laughs> to make myself feel better. But I, I never really thought of myself as a horror writer until I was told I was a horror writer, which was a very strange experience. I, I was writing these kind of dark, thrillery, you know, magical realism type things, very similar to, um, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with Jennifer McMahon, where she has the supernatural elements, but it's very much um, a thriller novel that she mm-hmm. writes. So it was something like that. And my books weren't, you know, getting picked up anywhere. My my agent was trying to sell and they didn't know where to put it on the shelf. And then my editor at Sourcebooks, who did these two horror novels, came back a year after her rejection and said, hey, what if we make uh, They Drown Our Daughters a horror novel? And I said, uh, sure, <laughs> let's try it. <laughs> let's see what happens. And and so I, I edited that and it became my first horror novel. And then very shortly after that, I wrote Graveyard of Lost Children. And the floodgates just kind of opened for me at that point. I felt empowered to, you know, broach these otherwise, you know, taboo kind of topics in a way that I think makes them palatable, I guess. I think I think you can talk about anything difficult under the guise of horror because hmm. you expect it to be uncomfortable and you're not jarred when it's uncomfortable because it's horror. You don't realize that you've been lessened until <laughs> you get to the end of it. Hmm. That's interesting. Like it seems like you can take more risk because it's it's horror. Do yeah, you think that's yeah. The case? Yeah, no, I definitely think so. Like if you think of some of the especially the horror movies that have come out pretty recently, they take on some really big stuff. Like they really go for the jugular when it comes to like racism and homophobia and and people who would not necessarily want to watch a movie about those themes do it because it's a horror movie. Why wouldn't you want to watch a horror movie? It's going to scare you. You're going to have fun. And then you get so deep into it that you you find yourself relating to characters and you find yourself sort of thinking about these things that you wouldn't necessarily think before. And I think that that is kind of the unspoken secret of horror writers is that we can, you know, poke the soft places and you don't notice because there's so much blood on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. So you had mentioned that the changeling element of the story. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, there's a character in the story that's called the black haired woman. And in some ways she reminded me of, I don't know if you've read Cassandra cause nothing but black and teeth, but there was something about her that reminded me of the Ohaguro Batari character in that. Mm-hmm. So it's from Japanese folklore. So I'm wondering, you know, with that whole, the, the changeling idea, the black haired woman, the folklore, was that just something you kind of dreamed up or was that, you know, stories you had heard and you sort of merged ideas? Sure. Yeah. No, I, I've never read the the Cassandra Caw book. I actually just picked up their newest one from the library, The Mermaid and Plague Doctor, when I, the name escapes me in this moment and I feel so bad about it. No, I have not read it, but I need to. Definitely. The black haired woman was kind of spawned from an image out of Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House TV oh. show on Netflix. The bent neck woman, the, the bent, bent neck, neck lady. lady. Yes. Oh my gosh. A hundred percent. She lives in my nightmares to this oh. day. Yes. I, that's the, one of the scariest things I have ever seen. It terrified the hell out of me. And I, I apologize for any spoilers for anyone who has not seen that show. And if you haven't already, then I can't help you. The, the idea of haunting yourself, that is what stuck with me about that character. It, it it dug in real deep. And I was like, that has got to be the most terrifying thing in the world is you're staring yourself in the face. And it is this horrifying image and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's so scary. And so just that idea, it, it dug in and it finally came out again when I was writing this book. Hmm. <sighs> That's giving me chills thinking about it. <laughs> it's so scary, but so good. <laughs> I have to ask you this too. Have you read Victor Laval's The Changeling? I have. I read it a very long time ago, probably around the the time that it first came out, and I okay. loved that book so much. Yeah. It was very, very good. Yeah, and okay. there's a there's a new uh, show coming out. I think about it. Yeah, it's on um, Apple TV. I think I don't have Apple TV, so I can't watch it yet. But I will find you, a way. I'm sure. 
You all, I am reading that book right now. So no spoilers. Don't okay, tell okay, me anything. Okay, 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 I'm okay. reading it right now. Katrina, I want to know what's a what's a niche topic that you love to read about? Uh, so I love really micro biographies. So what I mean by that is one of my most favorite nonfiction books is called The Electric Woman. And it's by Tessa Harding, I want to say her last name is. I know her first name is Tessa, but it is about this woman who is dealing with her mother's impending death by joining a carnival sideshow. And she is learning how to to eat fire and dance with snakes. And she's like confronting all of these horrifying fears that she has as a way to deal with her grief. And it is so beautifully written. And it is so like unusual a topic that you would think, oh, I'm going to deal with my grief by running away and joining the circus. Like... That is super weird. But little things like that, these nonfiction stories of women who are just trying to deal with life and they're doing it in ways that you would not expect. And I find those very fascinating and very inspiring as well. I've not heard that term before. I've heard the term micro histories, you know, to talk about books that talk about like super niche topics like tomatoes or uh I don't know, snails or what have you, but I've never heard the term microbiography and that's great. That sounds like a fascinating book. It is. It is very, very good. I highly recommend it. Yeah. I I don't know. I think I just made that up on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Well, we have thoroughly enjoyed talking with you about your two novels, They Drown Our Daughters and your most recent one, Graveyard of Lost Children. We are going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to be talking about what we're reading with our guest Katrina Monroe we are back with Katrina Monroe the author of Graveyard of Lost Children and Carrie Carrie what are you reading so i <laughs> I kind of got on an FBI kick here recently. So our book club, as you know, Amy, read Killers of the Flower Moon. That was our September book. And the film uh, by Martin Scorsese is coming out mid-October. So actually right around the time that this is airing. And uh, Amy, I think, I know you've read this and maybe you've talked about it on the show, but it's been a while. So just to review, it's the story of murders of tribe members in Oklahoma who owned oil headrights. So they owned the oil reserves. And unfortunately, there were laws in place that said that the tribe members were not smart enough or not uh, mature enough. I, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically they weren't allowed to control their own money. They had to have, and I'm putting this in air quotes, guardians. And you can imagine what race and sex the people were who were guardians of these <laughs> tribe members. So it's pretty astounding. I say it's pretty astounding. And then I'm like, no, it's totally not astounding given the history of Native Americans and their treatment in this country. But there were just a ton of Native Americans who died as a result of the greed and the corruption from the oil that was coming out of Oklahoma. And this case is kind of what started to make the FBI become as renowned as it was um, under J. Edgar Hoover when he was the director of the FBI. So I, I read that, but then I also listened to an audiobook, and that audiobook is titled Under an Outlaw Moon by Dietrich Kaltice. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And mm-hmm. it is about the FBI's hunt for Benny and Stella Dixon, a husband and wife team. She was only 16 who robbed a couple of banks in 1938-1939, and the FBI tracked them down for months. And I won't tell you what happened. But Benny and Stella met at a roller rink when she was 15. And by the time she was 16, she was friendly with a gun and helping her husband get loot from banks. Of course, you can't listen to this book without thinking about the desperate times that made a lot of people wish that they had the gumption to rob a bank because it was during the Depression and it was, uh, you know, people were moving out to California to find jobs. And so the economy was just kind of a mess. But I do want to say they never killed anyone during any of their robberies. Uh, But it was interesting. So I was getting my fill of FBI related 
content with these two books. So again, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran and Under an Outlaw Moon by Dietrich Kaltice. And it just I just realized that they both have moon in the title. <laughs> I can't believe you just realized that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. I'm like, well, how about that? They're both about the FBI and they both talk about the That's- moon. I, that's kind of unusual for you because you do not read a lot of true crime. I read no. some true crime. Mm-mm. So hearing you talk about those, it's like, wow, this is kind of like, almost like a new genre for you. A little bit. Yeah. I, I really don't read a whole lot of them. So, but I enjoyed both. But since I just read two of them, I'm like, I can take a break for a while. So <laughs> Katrina, what have, what have you been reading? So today I just finished reading Just Another Missing Person by Jillian McAllister. And she is the person who wrote a really big smash uh, earlier this year called Wrong Place, Wrong Time. She is a plotting fiend. I, her books are so incredibly twisty. I'm I'm so jealous of the way she's able to do this. But Just Another Missing Person is about a British police officer, DCI Julia Day, and the year prior to the book starting, she essentially covered up a murder for her daughter. She was attacked and she retaliated and the guy ended up dying later. And she is convinced that if put in front of a jury, self-defense wouldn't hold up. So she covered up this murder for her daughter. And then as the story begins, there is a missing woman that she is trying to find and someone who she does not know, uh, tells her that she has to frame this person for the missing woman's murder or the things she'd done for her daughter will become public and she will go to prison. Her daughter will go to prison. Her life will blow up. Everything will be horrible. And it takes us down this path of the stories of these different missing women that you don't realize intersect at these incredibly pivotal, really interesting times and ways. And it is about parents who are, it's very on theme, parents who are, <laughs> who will do anything essentially to to save their children or to keep them safe, who will sacrifice themselves in order for their children to be able to continue to live their lives. And it, I just buzzed through it. It was incredible. I, I was very sad to have finished it because now I just want to read it all over again to find the little clues that she planted everywhere that I missed somehow along the way. But yeah, it, it was it was really really good. I'm I'm I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to read next. I'm looking at my library cart very anxiously. <laughs> not sure. I don't know what's going to come next. But yeah, it was it was really really good. Um, just another missing person by Jillian McAllister. I'm always amazed by people who write mysteries and thrillers about how they think through all of those things. Do you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. the plotting point of it just seems so complex to me. Yeah, uh, I, I have no idea. I have always said that my books are very similar to Aaron Morgenstern's, only in that they are all vibes and no plot. <laughs> <laughs> Deliciously so. I love vibes. <laughs> vibes are my favorite thing. But whenever I, I go to try to, you know, plot a book point by point, by the time I get to the end, I'm like, well, now I know the whole story. I'm bored now. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like I want to I want to take that idea and think about like, how does that apply to people I know? Like, are they all vibes, no plot or? Yeah, yeah. no, you should. That'd be an interesting thought experiment. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Amy, what? What's been keeping you busy reading wise? Well, I started, you know, my my uh, my seasonal reads, my my spooky season reads. This is actually one that I read for the last spooky season from last year, and I just never got around to talking about it on the show. But a book lover who recorded a little audio clip for us that aired several weeks ago named this book. And when she when she named it, I'm like, oh, I love that book so much. And I never got to talk about it. So now I'm going to talk about it. It's called A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness. And this is a middle grade YA novel. The original concept was um, by an author named Siobhan Dowd, who passed away from cancer before she could write it. So... Patrick Ness was asked to write the story. And it's about a 13-year-old boy named Connor O'Malley, whose parents are divorced. His dad lives far away with a new wife and, and family. And his mother becomes very sick with cancer. And he begins having this repetitive nightmare where he's trying to hold onto a hand and it keeps slipping away. And then one night he awakes to a monster that's in the shape of a huge yew tree, Y-E-W, yew tree, outside his window 
and it kind of serves as his guide through his fear and grief about his mom when his mom is too ill to comfort him. And his father can't really be there all the time to support him because he lives, you know, kind of far away and he has his, his own new family has to take care of. And he and his grandmother who comes to stay have a very difficult relationship because she's sort of doing her own grieving and she isn't always emotionally available to him. So when Connor starts acting out in sometimes destructive and violent ways due to this misplaced anger, it is the monster who did it. But it's also the monster who helps him come to terms with his feelings through the telling of three stories. This is a beautiful book, but it's also a terribly sad book. So be Mm -hmm. prepared. (laughs) But it's full of real human emotions that we don't really like to talk about all that much. I just found out as I was like refreshing my memory about this book that there is a movie adaptation, which I didn't even realize, but it stars Liam Neeson as the monster and Sigourney Weaver as the grandmother. Hmm. So, I mean, now I want to see that movie, but only if I'm ready for a really good cry. Hmm. Uh, But again, the name of that book is A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness. Very good. Very sad, but very good. (laughs) Have you read it, Katrina? I have read it. It, it was a pretty recent read for me. I think I read it very early this spring. Had been sitting on my on my shelf for a while. And while I am glad I am read it, I I, I read it. I am also not happy with the amount of tears <laughs> that flowed as a result. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to uh, to ask Katrina our fast and furious questions. Even though Amy doesn't know how to. I don't know how to be fast. You don't know how to be fast. Or yeah. furious. But- I, know, I, I handle the furious part. I'm usually <laughs> furious about something. But before we come back with Katrina, we are going to have another five-star read from a fellow book lover. Hi, I'm Steph from Brighton, UK, and you can find me on Instagram at BookedUpGirl. My last five-star read was Easily Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Set at the start of the opioid epidemic in the Appalachian Mountains, Demon was born to a drug addict teenage mum. The story follows his life where the odds are stacked against him from the start. I was utterly sucked in by the phenomenal writing from the first page. The story is far from an easy read. It's in equal measures powerful, dark, heartbreaking and emotionally draining, but leaves you with hope. I really loved it in so many ways and for so many reasons. As someone who has a close relative who is a recovering drug addict, The book made me feel things I didn't think I would, and things I thought I'd forgotten. It showed me another side to the story. I was rooting for Demon and others throughout. Also, don't let the size of this one put you off. You'll lose yourself in the pages and wish it was longer. All right, we are back with Katrina Monroe. Katrina, are you ready for your Fast and Furious questions? I think so. (laughs) Okay. So what is the strangest dream you remember? Okay, so probably about 10 or so years ago, I was having this recurring dream where I was on a carnival ride, like one of those like haunted house carnival rides where you're sitting in this like little little car and they pull you through the the haunted house, except the haunted house was my house. Hmm. And it was haunted by just all of these like weird creatures that I vaguely recognized, but didn't. And as I'm like, trapped on this ride, I can't get out until I wake up. And I don't know if it was just a stress dream. <laughs> but it, it was probably every day for a month, I had this dream. Oh, oh, oh. it was real bad. <laughs> I don't I don't like repetitive dreams. I mean, I had one as a kid that I could still remember a repetitive dream I used to have. But even if they're happy, it's kind of freaky that you just like keep having the same one over and over again. It is. And it's frustrating because you're like, well, tonight I'm going to do a different and you get into the dream and you're just as trapped as you <laughs> yeah. were the time before. <laughs> yeah, It's like your brain is is doing some heavy duty vacuuming in like a certain part of itself that it's like, I got to work through this thing, whatever that thing is. Yeah, yeah. it, it must have been. But I haven't had that dream since. Now saying that I'll probably have it tonight. Just oh, no. It's in front of mine. Because <laughs> you talked but, about it. Yeah, yeah. but I, I'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Okay, which do you prefer, hockey or baseball? Well, I live in Minnesota, so I'll let you guess. I think it's hockey. That is correct. (laughs) (laughs) 
So it's funny because I guess there's more hockey down, you know, in some southern regions more than there used to be. But I never remember hockey too much until probably like the last 10 years. Now, I'm sure in Minnesota, it's always been probably a big thing. I guess well, I'm talking yes. about on a national level. We but are the state some- of hockey. Yeah. So have you <laughs> always been a hockey fan? Actually, I wasn't. I was a big football fan because I grew up in Florida. So woohoo, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, shout out. And then oh, okay. um, I moved up to Minnesota with my wife and she is a giant um, Minnesota Wild fan, huge hockey fan. She played hockey in high school. So we started watching it together. And I, I love how fast paced it is. There's no like weird interim where you're waiting for people to just get to their places. It's just bam, bam, bam. And also I will say, and this is very stereotypical hockey fan of me, but I love the fights. <laughs> we have a friend who loves the fights at hockey games. It's so fun. It's fun because it it's fighting the way like WWE wrestling is fighting where (laughs) part of it is painful. Yes. And some people actually get hurt, but really they're just doing it to get on each other's nerves. And, and that's, that's the fun part to me. I like the, the taunting. (laughs) All right. If you could put two monsters into a battle, these could be monsters from books or movies, wherever, who would you have Duke it out and who would win? Okay. So I'm going a little off script here a little bit. I think. But I would put um, Dr. Jekyll and Bruce Banner in a room together just to see if they would put their brains together and try to figure out a way to save themselves or if they would start like taunting each other into their monsters to see who would change first. And I, I wouldn't I have no idea who would win just because they're so I mean, by design, they're so alike. So I wonder if they would just like fight. Sit down and have tea forever, or or maybe yes, they would just they would just decide. You know what? We're not those other guys. We're just going to sit here like civilized scientists and have a nice cup of tea and talk about it. I would be fascinated to know. That would be very strange for me. Mm. Okay, so I have to plead ignorance. Who's Bruce Banner again? He is the, the scientific incredible Hulk. Yes. The Hulk. Okay, that's right. That's right. I knew it sounded, okay. I knew it sounded familiar, but I couldn't think like who who does he belong to? I don't remember. So thank you for clearing that up for me. I'm sorry. Who do you belong to? That's fine. <laughs> okay. Can you identify Lou Ferrigno? Yes. Okay. Okay. Just check it. Just yes. check it. Like I said, it sounded it sounded familiar, but I thought is that like the Iron Man or is it like, you know, they all have like regular names and then they have like their superhero name. I just couldn't, I couldn't put them together. I couldn't place it. So thank you for clearing that up. I <laughs> yeah. I am a bit ignorant on my monster superheroes. Okay. <laughs> and now a question, a really serious question now. Pie or cake. Yeah. It's so serious. Pie or cake? Cake. 100%. Okay. I am 100%. not a pie person. I find the gooey fruit center to be disturbing. <laughs> yeah, just it's just, like it him. feels like it's, I I don't know. It's, my fingers are like tingling just thinking about the texture. I don't like it. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. Okay, so, so here's, here's an additional question. Do you prefer the cake or the icing? Uh, the cake part, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm team. I mean, I like pies. If somebody sits a dessert in front of me, I'm, I'm going to eat it. But when it comes to cake, I like the cake part of the cake, not the icing part of the cake. Yeah. Like I really like a good pound cake. That's delicious. You don't need a ton of icing on it. It's just really good on its own. All right. So last question, would you rather explore space or the bottom of the ocean? The bottom of the ocean Definitely. And that it brings out the conspiracy theory side of me a little bit because like space is one thing, like it's, it's space is vast and ever changing and all of these things, but we live next to the ocean. We are very close. I can put my feet in it. How is it that we don't, that we still are discovering new things from the bottom of the ocean that freaks me out a little bit? Like it's yeah. right there. There's monsters there. I know there are monsters there. <laughs> I, know. I want who knows to know what's down there. It's I I I have I have a writer friend who says the ocean is just full of monsters and their poop, and I think that is <laughs> accurate. <laughs> that is 100 percent accurate. But I also want to know. I I 
the the way to conquer fear is knowledge. So if I know what the monsters are <laughs> and how, where to avoid them, I will feel better about my life. <laughs> and then you'll want to explore space to get away from the oceans full of monsters and their poop. Yes. So. <laughs> I mean, depending on depending on the monsters, you just, they could be cool. You never know. <laughs> All right. Well, very good. We have enjoyed chatting with you, Katrina. Thanks again so much. Katrina Monroe, author of They Drown Our Daughters and Graveyard of Lost Children. Have an awesome spooky season, Katrina. Thank you so much. This was fun. You can find Katrina Monroe on Instagram at Katrina Monroe Author or at her website, katrinamonroe.com. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabooklover.pod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.